Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today, we're discussing cyber conflict and security. My guest today is J.D. Work. Mr. Work serves as the Bren Chair for Cyber Conflict and Security at Marine Corps University, where he leads research to develop the theory, practice, and operational art of the cyber warfighting function, and explores the wider role of the cyber instrument in national security strategy and the future defense competition and stability problem space. You're going to have to tell us what that means. <laughs> Mr. Work has over two decades of experience working in cyber intelligence and operations for the private sector and U.S. government. He previously directed multiple international research programs to provide insight into the emerging strategic issues, economic consequences, and technology implications created by hostilities in the virtual domain. This work has sought to establish a reliable baseline of observations regarding the engagements, follow-on effects, capabilities, doctrine, and drivers behind the antagonistic action of potential combatants in the networked environment in order to support early warning, crisis management, and crisis prevention in and through cyberspace. Since 2001, he has developed and taught analytical tradecraft and other courses advancing the discipline of intel studies at a number of academic institutions and U.S. government agencies. He now continues to teach with the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, as well as the Elliott School of International Affairs at GW. Mr. Work, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, ma'am. Always a pleasure to be here. Before we start our discussion of cyber conflict and security, tell us a little about your background. What drew you to cyber conflict? That was actually a very long and complex uh, set of accidents, uh, at least for the folks that came in from my generation. I'm a former intelligence officer. I worked a lot of transnational issues. I worked a lot of difficult problems that weren't the conventional lanes for a number of our core missions. Uh, And increasingly, we found that there was a great degree of overlap with the technological domain and specifically with the emergence of actors in that domain that were capable of exercising espionage options or disruptive or destructive attack options against the equities we held dear. Uh, Understanding that threat, understanding capabilities, understanding where that was going uh, became the focus of my work for a number of years. I left, uh, went to industry and uh, built some capability uh, in the private sector, uh, multiple uh, firms across Silicon Valley, and uh, somehow stumbled into becoming an academic along the way as we were writing papers on uh, how to think about analysis in the space, how to uh, think about understanding problems here uh, and uh, where this future would take us. So you have spoken in the past about the fragility of warning in the cyber domain, and you specifically cited 2017 as a hard year. What happened in 2017 that was so significant? Intelligence in the cyber domain has been something we've been chasing for several decades. Uh, we, we argue about whether there's a logic of intelligence that pervades conflict in this domain, uh, whether this uh, logic is similar or distinct from earlier generations of covert action. And of course, intelligence uh, warning is the first purpose of the intelligence community. Uh, the, the U.S. national community was stood up in the wake of, uh, as a professional entity in the wake of um, the attacks at Pearl Harbor. And one of the earliest analogies we've used in the cyber domain was this concept of cyber Pearl Harbor, or electronic Pearl Harbor. My colleague, Wynne Schwarto, testified in front of uh, Congress in 1991 to that effect. Now, we can debate whether or not that analogy has continuing utility. Uh, it's a much debated topic. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, there's been a longstanding concern that this new strategic offensive capability of cyber effects could be used to deliver 
damage to our sources of national power in a way that collapses time and distance, uh, either from a bolt out of the blue attack scenario or through some other escalation of an ongoing competition and conflict in this domain. 2017 really showed us the first time that that warning uh, was absolutely needed and arguably one of a few critical times in which that warning absolutely had failed. And, you know, having been a part of some of that, that, that was a very hard failure for a lot of us to take. Um, in 2017, we had back-to-back -back issues related to the proliferation of certain exploit capabilities that were released onto the market by an unknown group of players that had not previously appeared on the scene, were not previously widely known, um, but they dropped some very exquisite, uh, very useful zero-day exploitation options, um, which a number of different players in the domain then picked up. That led to some major incidents, the, uh, the WannaCry incident, which is uh, commonly attributed by industry to uh, North Korea as a ransomware uh, effort, which in reality was more disruptive and destructive and not as readily um, monetizable. Uh, and the NotPetya or Nietzsche incident, which um, was never intended likely to be uh, monetized in any way. It was a purely destructive action carried out with a deception front of ransomware, uh, a deceptive um, narrative of ransomware. Uh, and then, uh, of course, the attempted restrike uh, involving a bad rabbit uh, malware variant, uh, which there was some warning, but uh, in which the adversary was able to take action nonetheless. Uh, both Nyatya and WannaCry had global consequences, imposed uh, billions, if not tens of billions of dollars of damage on collateral uh, networks uh, uninvolved in the Ukraine conflict or in tensions with DPRK. And the global scale, scope, and impact of those events was in many ways a, a surprise to many of the entities. Uh, we're still seeing litigation. We're still seeing pervasive uncertainty about uh, some of those effects even years on. That is one of those moments that you have to really think about how you're approaching this domain, how you're approaching the problems of this domain. We cannot sustain that type of failure routinely. And concurrently, in the summer of 2017, uh, there was an intrusion against um, a Middle Eastern regional country uh, using a destructive malware uh, variant intended to manipulate the safety instrumentation settings in physical process control uh, environments within certain plants, uh, certain uh, oil and gas sector uh, facilities, uh, which could have highly energetic outcomes as in things blow up. That's one of those moments where it's not just the, the servers go down, but we, we have the potential that you know, systems fail, people die. We don't have the luxury of simply uh, accepting a warning failure at that point anymore. And unfortunately, that's, that's really uh, where we come back to that fragility of warning. And you know, it leads us to explore how do we improve intelligence space? How do we improve the communication of that intelligence? Uh, as the grand dame of warning, uh, Ms. Cynthia Grabo has spoken about, warning is a process. You know, the intelligence must be developed. The intelligence must be assessed adequately. But it also must be communicated to his decision maker that hears and acts upon that intelligence. And that's a difficult process in this domain, as uh, particularly as our policymakers are struggling to uh, come to terms with their option space here. So without getting into too much detail, two and a half years later, have we seen improvement in any of those areas, either the intel gathering, the processing, or the communication to decision makers? Has the warning system become more stable, less fragile since 2017? We're seeing definite investment, definite improvement in how we think about it. We're seeing a difference in decision makers' ability to understand some of those conversations and to uh, the frequency at which those conversations are being held is improving our ability to think about 
options and therefore speeding our cycle of response options. But at the same time, I think we still have a long way to go. Uh, This is a domain that we have not had the length of experience we have had in the real world uh, intelligence uh, space. And at the same time, we've seen continuing uh, struggles to maintain competence, to maintain capacity to cover a number of real-world intelligence targets, whether these be ballistic missile launches, counterterrorism problems, to the extent that they're competing for time and attention, particularly scarce decision-maker attention, we, we have challenges. Mm. So spend a minute and talk with us about false flags. We hear about them from time to time in other contexts, but what does a false flag look like in the cyber realm? And how much of a concern is it? You had mentioned earlier that attribution can be a challenge in cyber. Does that minimize the challenge of a false flag or does it amplify the potential impact? Sure. There was a narrative for a very long time that attribution was difficult, if not impossible, in this domain. And it it is a thing that requires work, but it is a thing that we're increasingly proven from both uh, national capabilities and uh, increasingly private sector capabilities can be accomplished. Uh, We're seeing an absolutely stunning level of detail in regarding uh, certain destructive intrusion incidents, uh, certain espionage campaigns, um, and certain capabilities generation efforts by adversary competitors and direct hostile states uh, being exposed to the world um, and being exposed using unclassified sources and methods or things that can be released publicly. Uh, This is changing that equation dramatically. It also places a greater premium for some of those actors to develop attribution fronts, to develop misattribution capabilities, to wrap these actions up in these deceptive narratives. Um, whether it is to to steal the mantle of a criminal action like a ransomware event, to steal uh, a face of a hacktivist organization uh, working for single-issue ideological purposes, or to drive um, misattribution around the, the perceived benefits and uh, the perceived tensions and geopolitical relationship issues. So, for example, in the case of Triton and Trisis, the unclassified public industry reporting commonly attributes this to a specific Russian origin intrusion set. At the time of initial discovery, a lot of focus around this event in 2017 was on the potential that uh, this was actually an Iranian intrusion because it was perceived that Iran would benefit immediately from an attack on this regional Middle Eastern target. At the end of the day, there was a it was a complex story and it was a complex uh, bit of intelligence work to understand the difference and distinctions there. That same uh, logic drove very unique public disclosures uh, just this past year in which for the first time, uh, UK and US government agencies publicly acknowledged that Russian intrusion operators had actually hijacked some Iranian uh, malware infrastructure and were using this to both steal victims and to take those uh, malware implant payloads and use them for their own purposes. Uh, that's a story that we would we just have not seen told publicly in prior generations uh, of capability uh, assessment. Um, that really changes how we think about the problems of deception. Deception remains something we expect the adversary to do. It's baked into their operational planning process. At the same time, our counter-deception collection techniques, our counter-deception analytic processes have become much more sophisticated. And that is something we are pushing increasingly into the industry environment. So tease that out for us for a minute. How does that, again, without getting into too much information, how does that tie into concept development if what we're trying to do is counter cyber threat? So if we accept that warning is a more difficult prospect than we had thought a priori to recent events, it means we have to go very much left of click or left of bang. Um, 
going left to click means we we start looking at the supply chain. We start uh, the adversary capabilities. We look at how they're generating forces, how they're managing their talent, how they're organizing and structuring those campaigns against these sources of national power, these things that we hold dear. Um, and it means rather than conceptualizing these as single events that we have to stop, we have to look at denying and degrading capability over an extended period of time. Leads us to a very different series of counter cyber operations concepts of operation. We can counter across our instruments of national power through the use of sanctions, through the use of law enforcement mechanisms, through the use of uh, uh, diplomatic and partner relationships. We also have uniquely new considerations in whether or not we permit adversaries to build offensive intrusion infrastructure in uncontrolled uh, cyberspace, compromised cyberspace, and if we permit them to do so uncontested. It is a choice for the adversary to take bad actions against systems and networks that belong to other folks, um, but that they have no right to be in. Previously, Department of Defense had considered its mandate and its scope to work uh, to protect its own networks and the networks of government were asked. It is a different question, though, what the nation expects of the department. Do they expect us to protect critical infrastructure from adversary military services, from hostile intelligence services? Um, do, they, do our allies expect us to support them in protecting that infrastructure? What is the role for the department in that? And we're really reconsidering a lot of this. Um, it's led to some very difficult national conversations. It's led to entire changing uh, strategic approach brought down from U.S. Cyber Command, um, where we're talking about the idea of defending forward, reaching out into gray space to contest and uh, deny adversary uh, utility from some of the preparatory actions that led to these incredibly destructive events. So it's interesting, as you as you were talking about this, it occurs to me that that this is an area of deterrence is denial, or maybe a space for deterrence is denial that I hadn't personally previously considered. Is there work in the cybersecurity arena on deterrence, either traditional conceptions of deterrence or the newer conceptualization of deterrence is denial? It sounds to me that's exactly what you're describing. Has that link up been made? Very much. Um, it is still an area of immense debate, however. Traditional nuclear deterrence literature is predicated on a few assumptions. One is that the majority of the capabilities are not commonly used, or hopefully in the case of nuclear weapons, never again used, as we would wish, um, but that are always ready for use. Cyber operations capabilities, offensive cyber operations capabilities are distinguished in that they are used almost daily at this point in the environment. We would like to change that. We would like to see those capabilities not employed. It's a very different starting point, though, than the nuclear literature presupposed. It also, we also make distinctions between deterrence at or above the threshold of armed conflict and deterrence in this gray space and hybrid operations space where we see the, uh, the majority of adversary effort focused at this point in time. We see a series of adversary actions intended to uh, work below that threshold of armed conflict to challenge us in ways that are hard to respond to with direct military action. And it means we have to have a very different strategic logic. In some ways, we can say deterrence has absolutely failed in the cyber environment, uh, in that the adversary feels uh, the ability to act unconstrained, at least in this gray zone and hybrid operation space. We can argue whether or not it's worked at that high end above the threshold of armed conflict. Unfortunately, we've seen uh, through, again, I'll, I'll cite only unclassified industry reporting in this, uh, but commercial intelligence has told us that a number of adversaries have postured very aggressively uh, in actions we consider operational preparation in the environment. That is, pre-positioning strategic access for 
major disruptive actions against transportation, energy, water, and other critical infrastructure targets. Uh, this is a very different place than traditional uh, consideration of an adversary's bought a capability. It's sitting in a silo waiting to be used. Uh, the analogy here is that the adversary bomber is already over the city circling. Puts us in a very different position in terms of how we think about response options. Mm-hmm. I have mentioned a couple of times in in asking questions to caution you not to give too much detail, you yourself just now had made a point to say that you were drawing from publicly available industry data. How do we really wrestle with the challenges of our own offensive capability in cyber, or if we're talking about countering cyber threats, how do we really grapple with deep thinking about this issue in a public space? This is a hard challenge. For a number of years, I think we had that balance completely wrong. We, in our classification guidance, had actually taken uh, the concept of attack out of the unclassified discussion entirely. Now, that's pretty ludicrous. I think we finally realized that that was ludicrous. There is no military technology that cannot also be used for attack and defense purposes at a top-line level. We have begun to see some critical declassification to enable some of this conversation, uh, both around some of the larger uh, national strategic concepts, uh, the vision uh, for persistent engagement put forth by U.S. Cybercom, uh, some of the elements of the National Defense Strategy and some of the language in the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, but we've also seen uh, declassification of some very surprising documents uh, directly out of Cyber Command related to uh, very recent operations. So uh, actions involving efforts to deny and degrade ISIS or Daesh capabilities in uh, the CENTCOM area of operations, for example, uh, fell under the work of an entity known as JTF Ares, Joint Task Force Ares, um, and it was known as Operation Glowing Symphony. U.S. Cyber Command recently, uh, as of last summer, uh, began to declassify some of the key documents from that campaign. And it's given us a lot of insight both into the way in which that campaign was planned and developed, the forces were generated to pursue and prosecute uh, that campaign, but also critically the restraints on that campaign. There's been a lot of discussion in the Department of Defense as this unilateral cowboy actor, this group that um, is out there, you know, firing packets off and smashing targets because, you know, we're, we just like breaking things. Well, and I mean, I, I will say there's a great joy to breaking adversary targets. And, you know, we all, we, we all uh, when appropriately called upon to do so, will enjoy doing that. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it's really a question of partnerships. It's really a question of understanding what are the appropriate limitations for the use of force in the virtual environment, uh, how we constrain potential proliferation of a capability once it's been used so that adversaries cannot pick those up and replay them against us in different environments. And then also what the proper understanding and way to communicate the nature of those actions and the limits of those actions are to all the other partners that are involved. Um, there's a great deal of secrecy that's involved in how we conduct those operations, but describing those constraints is pretty important. Uh, and it's really one of the first times we've been able to do so. So how does this tie to arsenal management? So identifying when to use a particular offensive capability, knowing that once you've deployed it, as you suggest, it is out in the space. You can't unbark that dog once it's out there. We don't get to do it again, necessarily. And we certainly, at that point, there's capability that could then be turned on us in a different way. What is the way to grapple through identifying when and how to deploy weapons for certain scenarios? 
this uh, is as vaguely as possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is one of those areas where uh, we've actually been driving a lot of recent research. We've been doing some uh, critical wargaming here at Marine Corps University around how to think about these uh, decisions, about how folks react to these decisions given different levels of information regarding the capabilities. Because again, not every commander is as familiar with things that happen hands on the keyboard, um, and making sure they have the right level of information to make key decisions and com have communicate that appropriately to higher echelons. Um, but then also do we understand the nature of this domain? You know, conceptualizing this as a two-player game is very different than understanding the variety of modern folks that are watching engagements in this space and are learning from engagements in this space and how we shape operations to deny that folks we don't want to learn certain lessons uh, effectively. I was lucky enough to have spoken uh, last spring uh, up at Harvard University on this topic. And I proposed there this concept of the decision space of the mill. If you look at the early introduction of European gunpowder warfare, a lot of maneuver of major forces, a lot of unusual behaviors in armies in the field really were the result of hard economic decisions regarding the cost of gunpowder, the logistics supply of that powder to their musketeers, and how therefore they could then risk those forces in the field. Well, in some ways, we have that with some of these scarce, exquisite offensive cyber capabilities. We are used to balancing a set of considerations, which we call novus, nobody but us. They're so unique, they're so unthinkable, that uh, it is it simply is not something that's publicly considered as an option in a cyber conflict environment. Now, unfortunately, year over year, novus gets harder. Mm -hmm. Year over year, more folks understand this domain and can bring capabilities to bear in this domain. Year over year, these capabilities get a lot more expensive. Uh, right now, uh, in O'Day, uh, that is a uh, previously unknown exploit in uh, a popular mobile operating system, costs about $2 million. So roughly, we think about one of those as the cost of a Tomahawk land attack missile. Um, and of course, you buy a Tomahawk, it sits in the inventory. You know that will work when you pull that out of the ship's magazine and need to fire that against the target. There is no guarantee that you buy that capability today, that in 90 days, 180 days, or a year from now, that capability is still going to be viable against the class of targets you need. Now, that's that very high-end space for decision-making. On the other side of the equation, though, we have a lot of adversaries that are working with extremely commodity capabilities. These are things that have been known for years. These are implants that have been seen and repurposed across multiple theaters. They're publicly available tools that you can download simply off of GitHub or some other public repository. They're paired with capabilities, uh, exploit capabilities, that are targeting either one day, that is, known but un as yet unpatched vulnerabilities, or very well-known vulnerabilities. There's a differential cost investment in countering adversaries working across that basis. And uh, it really changes uh, that economic rationale for some of this warfare decisions. How do we think about adversarial response to our actions, either if it is us repurposing existing capability or us deploying a one-day capability that, that hasn't been deployed yet? Is that something we you had mentioned that we spent a lot of time gaming through how our adversaries are going to react to us is that a driver of our decision-making, or is that a secondary consideration as we try to maximize a particular outcome at a discrete point in time? So a lot of that depends on the campaign. That depends on some decision-maker priorities, some command priorities. It's something we can't ignore, though. We must understand how adversaries see and sense and make sense of us in this domain, uh, us or our allies or industry partners that may be taking actions, because this isn't merely an offensive space problem. This is a space where um, we have a variety of different actors using their leverage in the domain 
whether it is their ability to defensively configure some countermeasure, whether it's their ability to change the terrain to their favor because of the individuals that built that technology stack. Every piece of this is a moving and fluid board. There are so many different pieces that are in constant motion. Um, understanding how the adversary makes sense of that, understanding the limitations and weaknesses of that sense-making, because they may perceive certain things to be more escalatory, be more challenging than we intended it to be. They may miss a certain signal we intended to be an effort to encourage their restraint, um, simply because they did not understand it failed. Um, they may have gaps in their command decision-making where their operators on the keyboard are not communicating with their leadership, or they're hiding their failures. They're hiding the sources of their loss um, because it makes them look bad at the operational level, yet their leadership thinks everything is going swimmingly. This creates difficult moments for competitive engagement in this space. We also then have to think very hard about how the adversary adapts under pressure. Uh, these are not single-move games. This is uh, a series of actions that take place over months, years, uh, if not decades. And the more we iterate through this contest, the more the adversary has an opportunity to introduce innovations under that pressure. And if we can anticipate what the simple pathways of innovation would be, it mean it is therefore a burden on us to ensure we deny those pathways to that adversary, uh, or at least give the decision maker the option to take the actions that would deny that pathway. Uh, and of course, we across all of this, we must carefully manage the escalation dynamics. Mm -hmm. All of these different interactions create a tremendous amount of potential for misperception, potential for emotion, uh, potential for difficult bureaucratic and service level competitive dynamics to drive outcomes that we per perhaps would not wish to see. So what does all this mean for the future of U.S. cyber forces, specifically for the Marine Corps? Well, the Marine Corps is going through a hard bit of soul searching right now. Um, you know, we're coming into the terrible 20s, as our colleagues over at uh, another podcast, uh, famous in the naval space, would say. We're looking at some hard budget years. We're looking at uh, a lot of sacred cows that may not be something we can continue to afford. Our commandant has challenged us with some very aggressive planning guidance to look at that new force structure, look at the kinds of capabilities the nation needs, what they will ask us to do. And as we look at that new force structure, we're looking at what kind of networks support those force structure, particularly as we move into more distributed maritime operations, as we move into more expeditionary advanced base operations concepts, where we have uh, forces that don't look like the forces we've grown up over the past several decades fighting, and they move, uh, maneuver, communicate, and fight in a very different way. Um, it's a very different ISR balance. It's a very different communication structure. How do we protect that? How do we enable that? How do we contest adversary attempts to deny and degrade our spectrum, deny and degrade our posture in those ways? And then, of course, what force projection options do we give to those information warfare commanders and to those expeditionary forces commanders um, in order to exercise uh, the sea control and the forced entry missions that we're being asked to look at? So if our listeners wanted to learn more about cyber conflict, where would you recommend they turn? Oh, there's a tremendous amount of work in this space. Um, I will, of course, always recommend the Cyber Conflict Studies Association, which are a batch of academics and practitioners that have worked very hard on uh, some of these questions over a number of years. The Sands Institute uh, is a great uh, repository of uh, industry practical knowledge as well as some academic perspective roped in. Um, there's some work from our uh, fellows up at Columbia University. There's some uh, work from our fellows at Oxford, uh, some friends of ours at Harvard, Belfer Center, and of course, um, uh, ETH Zurich. You know, we've got a lot of friends in this space. Uh, Stanford University, 
we, we work with all of them. Uh, they have some amazing resources available uh, on the topic. Uh, and of course, uh, the, the formal academic uh, journals have really been picking up a lot more on this. So some recent good work on cyberintelligence at the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, uh, some great work uh, with Intelligence National Security, um, Journal of Strategic Studies, a few other great places. Great. So last question. What are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? And it does not have to be cyber-related at all. <laughs> so looking right now at uh, a book from one of our colleagues at the University of Glasgow on the dynamics of intelligence outsourcing and uh, intelligence contracting dynamics, largely because of the importance of the commercial intelligence space to this domain, uh, looking a bit at some hard challenges of exploit mitigation. So unfortunately, that's not really uh, the... the the formal textbooks in this area lag tremendously. So we're looking at some of the very unusual uh, hardware exploitation options and some of the um, uh, side channel and cryptologic attack uh, problems that we've been facing. And then, of course, uh, really diving into this future operating concepts space where uh, looking at uh, some of the differences in operations models in prior campaigns, uh, particularly over the formative years when we began to think about basing options in the Pacific, you know, the work from... Um, Pete Ellis, uh, back in the pre-World War II time, and then uh, some of the inspirations from the British East India companies, uh, far-flung uh, operations and basing choices, as well as back to the original Newport studies of coaling and uh, logistics. Mm. Well, Mr. Work, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at at Marine Corps U. Thanks to our producer, Jin Padjahau, our show manager, Captain Matt Brewer, and the Marine Corps University Foundation for their support. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWar College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.